0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. I'm Orteza Hajizadeh, your host from New Books Network. And today I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Simon Mills about a wonderful book he published with uh, Oxford University Press. The book is called A Commerce of Knowledge, Trade, Religion and Scholarship Between England and the Ottoman Empire, 1600 to 1760. The book was published in 2020. Dr. Simon Mills is a Senior Lecturer in Early Modern History at Newcastle University. Simon, uh, welcome to New Books Network. Uh, uh, Hi, thank you for having me on. Uh, Before we start talking about the books, uh, can you briefly introduce yourself, Simon, tell us about yourself and your field of expertise, and more importantly, how this book came about and why you decided to write a book uh, about... uh, about the exchange of, let's say, knowledge, commerce of knowledge between England and the Ottoman Empire.
1: Certainly. So, uh, my name's uh, Simon Mills. I work uh, in uh, Newcastle University in uh, in England. Uh, I, I know you have one in uh, Newcastle University in Australia as well. And my uh, field of interest is really the history of ideas in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, initially, I was um, interested in the history of philosophy. That was the, the actually the topic of my uh, PhD research, uh, but uh, the history of uh, biblical studies and uh, and the history of what were called uh, at the time in the 17th century, Oriental studies, which uh, began um, in that period with, this, with the study of Hebrew, uh, but expanded uh, during the course of the 16th century to include the languages which were recognized at the time as being closely related to Hebrew, that is uh, Arabic, uh, Syriac and uh, Aramaic and, and so forth. Uh, and, uh, and, and this uh, uh, discipline, the, the, the study of Oriental languages, took root in the uh, European universities in the 17th and, and 18th century. Uh, so that's one part of my interest. The other part is really uh, the, the broader uh, connections between uh, Western Europe and the uh, Islamic world, which uh, during this period was primarily the, the, the Ottoman Empire, And I'm particularly interested, I suppose, in how those two interests uh, come together. That is how the the connections diplomatic uh, and commercial uh, between the European states and the Ottoman Empire in the 16th and 17th century uh, resulted in or uh, facilitated these kinds of uh, scholarly and intellectual exchanges. And that's obviously the the, the topic of uh, of a commerce of knowledge, or, or, or a commerce of knowledge tries to explore one aspect of that much broader topic through the case study of these uh, uh, th- these uh, English chaplains in Aleppo. Mm. So, sorry. Now go ahead, go ahead, please. Uh, th- so uh, uh, to say something uh, about the book and, uh, and how it came about, uh, I was interested, uh, perhaps it's clear from what I've said already, initially, by the the history of uh, ideas side, history of scholarship. So I'd really got interested in the course of my doctoral research in the uh, study of Arabic in uh, Western Europe in in the 17th century. Uh, I was particularly uh, inspired by a book by a scholar called Gerald Tuma about the history of Arabic studies in 17th century England. Uh, And I wanted to write about that, but I wanted, I suppose, to try to, uh, contextualise it by looking at it within the context of English uh, commercial uh, relations with the Ottoman Empire uh, during this uh, during this period. And that, I, I should perhaps say at the very beginning that that wasn't necessarily an obvious thing to do, because although these two things, uh, uh, although the, the, the history of uh, Arabic studies in, in England in the 17th century was contemporaneous with uh, English trade in the Ottoman Empire, the, the connection is not necessarily a straightforward one. Uh, The scholars have their own concerns, which didn't always overlap with the uh, concerns of uh, merchants and ambassadors in the Ottoman Empire. But it it occurred to me that uh, there was this link between uh, English Oriental scholarship and many of the chaplains who served uh, f- for the, uh, the the English Levant Company which uh, we'll come on to talk about but at the time was the main uh, commercial organization organizing English trade in the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, th- there was a link between the chaplains who served that organization and uh, the, the development of um, uh, the study of Arabic and other Middle Eastern languages so that was what really brought me to uh, the, the topic of, of the book.
0: And, and uh in the book, you talk about this Levant Company, and I'm really interested to know more about that and how and why they decided to sort of lay the foundations for this commerce of letters. And you also talk about uh, clergymen who were appointed in Aleppo to minister British expats. So
1: it would be nice if you could talk about this a little bit in more length. Sure. Uh, well, the origins of the Levant Company, uh, in a sense, go back to the the, the mid-16th century. There was some English traders, a man called uh, Anthony Jenkinson, who was in uh, Aleppo in the, uh, the 1550s. At this point, I perhaps should, should say that the main, uh, prior to the English, the main uh, European commercial forces in the Eastern Mediterranean are the Venetians, who have a long-standing history of, uh, of trade in that region, and French, who'd, uh, who'd um, arrived somewhat before the, um, the English in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so the origins go back to the, the 16th century, but the, the Levant Company or its precursor, the Turkey Company uh, was founded in uh, 1581 uh, during the reign of uh, Queen Elizabeth. And, and the Levant Company uh, a proper came around in 1592 when uh, the, the Turkey Company and another early trading company, the Venice Company merged uh, and were granted a new uh, charter. Uh, The charter is the the, the term that's used in the contemporary sources, but it's much closer to what we'd now call uh, a monopoly in that uh, these trading companies, the Levant Company, which emerges at the end of the 16th century, uh, is really granted a kind of um, monopoly uh, for all trade um, going between England and uh, the area referred to then as the Levant, which is basically the eastern Mediterranean, Turkey, uh, and the the countries which now comprise uh, Lebanon and Syria. Palestine and in um, Egypt. Uh, so that's that's the origins of the uh, the, the Levant company. it, uh, it has its uh, center in uh, Istanbul, Constantinople where the English from around this time uh, maintain uh, an ambassador uh, and during the course of the 17th century two centers uh, in the Levant really emerge uh, as the main um, uh, 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 points of English trade, Izmir. Uh, in Western Turkey, usually referred to at the time uh, by its Greek name, Smyrna, and Aleppo in uh, in Syria, which is uh, the, the main focus of uh, of my book, uh, and the chaplains. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the the origins of the of the chaplains uh, go back again to the end of the sixteenth, uh, beginning of the uh, of the seventeenth century. Uh, the first ones, as far as I'm uh, aware, uh, w- were sent out to uh, Constantinople, Istanbul. Uh, to to minister to the English ambassador uh, based in in that city. Uh, And from around the end of the the, the 16th century, uh, the Levant Company uh, agreed to send out uh, chaplains to to minister to its then quite small communities of of English merchants, first of all in Aleppo uh, and afterwards in in Izmir. Uh, So generally throughout the course of the 17th and through to the 18th century, uh, the Levant Company... Uh, uh maintains and pays the salaries of uh three chaplains uh in istanbul in samrna uh, ismir and uh and in aleppo and the job of the chaplain uh is uh is really uh, just that to minister to the um uh to to the to the english merchants uh, to conduct an anglican uh, church of england religious service on sundays uh, to to make sure that uh, general moral uh, standards upheld among the, uh, the the merchants, who are usually young uh, men who've uh, who've gone out to to serve in Aleppo, sometimes for a period of uh, a decade or, or so. Uh, but apart from that, uh, they they don't have uh, uh, very much to do in terms of uh, the the everyday uh, trading business of the uh, of the company and its merchants. Uh,
0: another thing I'm really interested in: you talk about how these chaplains. Uh, established and also maintained connections between Syria and uh, English universities, London, and also English universities. How, how did they go about establishing these connections? What was the purpose of that?
1: Yeah, well, I, I said that some um, didn't have um, uh, very much to do in terms of uh, the, the, the the business dealings of the company, uh, and in a way, <clears throat> that's exactly what makes them of interest to me, because it meant that uh, many of them did have time uh, to follow their own uh, pursuits. So so most of the chaplains, well, all of the chaplains had been uh, educated at uh, one of the two uh, then existing English universities, Oxford uh, and Cambridge. And in fact, uh, m- m- most of the ones, or most of the chaplains who went out to Aleppo uh, during, certainly all of the ones during the 17th century, and most of those in the 18th century, had been uh, educated at one of the colleges of, of the University of Oxford. And some of them, not all of them, but some of them uh, had already developed uh, scholarly interests uh, related to the Eastern Mediterranean before being appointed as chaplains. So some of them, for example, had begun uh, the study of Arabic then, uh, or certainly in the early 17th century, quite fashionable in the in the University of Oxford. And they were all uh, broadly interested in the kinds of things that uh, Uh, scholarly uh, young men in the 17th century were interested in uh, the the study of uh, uh, classical texts and particularly the study of what's often referred to as uh, antiquarianism that is uh, coins uh, ruins other material uh, remnants of of the eastern Mediterranean and so uh, for for many of these chaplains uh, a stint of uh, three or four years in Aleppo uh, was an opportunity to pursue uh, various kinds of, uh, of scholarly interests, learning languages or exploring the, the, the material remains of, the, uh, of Syria and, uh, and the Levant um, more broadly. And what many of them tended to do was uh, uh, to remain uh, in touch with their, their friends uh, and colleagues at the university from which they'd uh, come and to uh, occupy some of their time by writing letters uh, back to. Uh, the, 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 these uh, friends and colleagues, uh, in giving them reports, informing them about uh, life in in the Levant, and, and supplying them with um, with observations which they thought might be of interest uh, to to their friends at home.
0: And uh, one of these uh, champions you talk about is Edward. I hope I'm not mispronouncing the name uh, Pocock or Pocock. Pocock? Yeah. Pocock, yeah. yeah. Uh, he he was a fascinating character. He stayed in Aleppo, and then he he built his own uh, he built his own library. He established his own connections with scholars and also booksers in 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 Syria. Can you, can you talk a little about him? How long did he stay there? And talk about his library and his connections with with Syrian locals there?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, Edward Pocock is uh, probably uh, for somebody uh, coming to the book. Edward Pocock is probably the best known. Uh, of, of the chaplains uh, about whom I, I, I write in the book. Uh, he's, quite, uh, he's quite well known as uh, um, one of the um, protagonists in the story of Oriental scholarship in uh, 17th century Europe. And that's because after his return from Aleppo, he went on to become the first uh, professor of Arabic at the University of Oxford and, and to become one of the leading scholars uh, of the study of Arabic and indeed of, of Hebrew in, uh, in 17th century Europe. And already uh, before he went out to Aleppo in uh, 1630, uh, he began to uh, uh, to make a name for himself as, as a scholar publishing uh, a, a part of uh, the Syri- Syriac version of the Bible. Uh, so so he, he goes out to uh, Aleppo in 1630 uh, and he remained there for uh, six years. Uh, 1636 he afterwards um incidentally went uh, and and spent time in the other center of english trade in the eastern mediterranean in istanbul and served for a period as a a, a chaplain to the uh, to the english ambassador there but he spent six years in aleppo and, and as you say uh, he used that time uh, primarily to build up this uh, collection of manuscripts i'm talking here about manuscripts in arabic uh, but also uh, manuscripts in hebrew uh, and also in uh, judeo arabic that is um uh, Arabic written in Hebrew characters used by the uh, the, the Jews in, the, in Arabic-speaking uh, countries. And, and uh, uh, some manuscripts in uh, a smaller number of manuscripts in other languages, um, such as Syriac. Uh, and as you say, Pocock was able to do this. And this was the, the, the question I was perhaps particularly interested in, uh, in the section on Pocock. Uh, he was able to do this in large part uh, due to his uh, connections with the local scholar's Uh, whom he uh, met in in Aleppo. And one of those uh, connections, which I was particularly keen to explore uh, in the book was between Pocock and uh, a local uh, uh, Muslim, uh, a Sufi in Aleppo called Ahmed uh, al-Ghulshani. And and, uh, I explore this uh, in some depth uh, in the book, thinking about uh, their relationship, uh, thinking about how uh, Ahmed al-Ghulshani served as a kind of guide uh, to Pocock to uh, uh, to 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 help him uh, find his way into the traditions of uh, of Arabic literature. Uh, and, and I should maybe say here that the the um uh, the the breadth of uh, of interests uh, uh, represented in uh, Pocock's library uh, is very wide. so you find we find there uh, books of poetry, books of history, books about uh, uh, religion, and uh, and aolog Shani, as I tried to show in the book, uh, was uh, uh, played quite a major role in uh, assisting Pocock to 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 build up this uh, build up this collection.
0: And uh, you you also talk about another person uh, in the book here, Robert Huntington, who went to went about to have one of the most extensive collection of Oriental manuscripts. And then I think he brought them to Europe. So who was he? Can you talk about him a little?
1: Yeah, sure. So Robert Huntington uh, uh, is. Uh, a younger man than uh, Edward Pocock and had indeed been a student of uh, Edward Pocock uh, at Oxford uh, prior to his um, uh, his setting out to Aleppo. So Robert Huntington went to Aleppo in uh, uh, 1670 and and stayed there for around 10 years. He returned in uh, 1680, which is quite a long uh, stint for for a chaplain. Five years is perhaps a more uh, typical time. And uh, Robert Huntington in many ways uh, emulated uh, the, the time which uh, Pocock spent uh, in Aleppo. But one of the things I tried to show in the book is that this gap of 30 years or so uh, was significant because it meant that the role of a, uh, a chaplain had, uh, had changed. And there was a number of ways in which it had changed. Firstly, because uh, when Pocock was uh, went out to Aleppo, uh, he was very much uh, attempting to do something which very few European scholars had had done. There were some uh, examples uh, in the Netherlands. There was uh, a a man called uh, Jacobus Golius, who also went on to become one of the greatest uh, Arabic scholars of the 17th century, who'd who'd built a a collection of manuscripts uh, somewhat earlier in the 1620s in Aleppo. But essentially, uh, Pocock was was attempting to do something for which there were very few precedents. That was, uh, he was trying to put together a collection of books Uh, in in a field of knowledge about which very little was known in 17th century uh, Europe. Huntington was rather different in that uh, by this point in the the, the 1670s, uh, there was much more by way of uh, bibliographies, for example, of of, of Arabic manuscripts. Uh, And this meant that uh, for for a scholar like Huntington, uh, the, 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 the books he was uh, attempting to find were much more specific. There was, there, there was a uh, a body of knowledge upon which it was hoped uh, he could build during his time in, 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 the, uh, in the Middle East. Another difference is that, uh, whereas uh, Pocock was largely collecting uh, for himself, uh, by the 1670s, when uh, Huntington went out to Aleppo, there was quite a community of uh, English scholars who by now were interested, largely because of uh, the, the influence of Pocock's uh, teaching in Oxford in the intervening years, uh, interested in studying for themselves uh, manuscripts from the Middle East. And so Huntington uh, went out to Aleppo with a whole series of commissions from his friends and, uh, and associates about uh, uh, commissions of uh, uh, books uh, he might find uh, for them. Uh, Huntington was also uh, different from Pocock because uh, in many ways, he, uh, he uh, for reasons uh, I think largely dependent on his, his, uh, his own character, uh, he, he was somewhat more uh, adventurous, and so whereas Pocock uh, had spent most of his time in the Levant, uh, in the city uh, of Aleppo, uh, Huntington travelled quite widely during his uh, his years abroad. He was in uh, Egypt. Uh, he travelled throughout um, Syria, uh, and uh, and he used these uh, these travels for his uh, manuscript collecting. So whereas Pocock, most of Pocock's manuscripts came uh, from the city of Aleppo. Uh, Huntington was able to uh, acquire uh, manuscripts from Egypt and indeed some of the some of the manuscripts he he found in Egypt were uh, ended up being his uh, uh, his most significant finds And then as you say uh, uh, Huntington in uh, 1680 brings back this extraordinary collection of uh, between six and 700 uh, manuscripts and uh, uh, towards the end of his life, uh, well, firstly, he, he donates uh, some of these um, uh, parts of some of these connections to the, the Bodleian Library in Oxford, as well as to the Library of uh, Trinity College uh, in Dublin. And uh, eventually his, uh, his manuscript collection is bought, uh, the bulk of his manuscript collection is bought by the Bodleian Library in Oxford, uh, uh, where it remains uh, today. And, uh, and is one of the collections acquired uh, by the library in the last years, of the 17th and early years of the 18th century, which really substantially augments uh, the Oriental holdings at uh, the university and essentially makes it uh, a rival of other European libraries uh, in Leiden, in the Netherlands and uh, in France. Uh, which have become uh, major centres of Oriental scholarship during the course of the of the seventeenth century.
0: And uh, you, you've talked about these two people. but What was, in general, the relationship between European collectors and local scholars, like
1: in that region? Well, I think it's it's, it's maybe important to uh, make clear that uh, when when we talk about local scholars, we're essentially talking about quite a, a broad and quite a diverse. Uh, a range of groups. So I mentioned already this connection between uh, Edward Pocock and uh, a Sufi a Muslim al Ghulshani, and that relationship we know because of a, uh, a series of uh, letters pres- uh, between the two men, or from uh, Ahmed to, uh, to to Pocock, preserved in the University of Oxford, uh, seems to have been very good. They they were clearly impressed by one another's uh, scholarly interests, and uh, and uh, all the indications are that uh, they 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 got on. Um, uh, very well. Uh, Huntington's connections were, uh, were somewhat different, because although uh, he certainly uh, is likely to have been uh, uh, associated with, uh, with Muslim scholars in Aleppo, most of the uh, sources that we have document his relationships with uh, Christian uh, scholars, so he, he was particularly close to, uh, uh, or worked particularly closely with uh, a man called uh, Stefan Adewahi, who was the uh, patriarch of the Maronite church, one of the uh, Eastern Christian churches in uh, w- which, uh, at this point, was uh, w- was based in uh, in Lebanon, and uh, and Huntington uh, persuaded uh, Estefano de Wehi to search for manuscripts for him in the Lebanese monasteries, and w- with some success, many of uh, or, or some of uh, Huntington's important uh, manuscripts came from uh, the, the Maronite monasteries, uh, and Huntington was also uh, in touch with and collaborated with uh, a Samaritan. Uh, scholar, uh, and uh, and many of his um, uh, his important finds were uh, Samaritan manuscripts. Samaritans are uh, a small uh, group of um, uh, uh, who separated from the the the, the, uh, uh, the, the Jews, and um, and and Huntington was able to acquire some uh, some uh, uh, Samaritan manuscripts and uh
0: you in the book you also go on to talk about pilgrimage pilgrimage to jerusalem uh jerusalem there were of course there were a lot of british protestants there but you 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 also you you make this argument there that it was not completely relevant to british protestants who lived in in the area can you talk about this aspect please
1: yeah sure uh <clears throat> so well that's absolutely right it wasn't uh completely irrelevant to, uh, to British Protestants. I mean, there, there, there has been uh, a, an argument made that um, pilgrimage uh, ceased to become important to Protestants after, after the Reformation. And of course, there's an element of uh, truth in that, that um, uh, the English chaplains who uh, went out to, well, the Englishmen generally who traveled in the, the Eastern Mediterranean after the Reformation uh, tended to be sceptical about many of the traditions associated with, uh, with pilgrimage, and that's of course because in their mind these traditions were uh, very strongly associated with uh, Roman Catholicism. Uh, so they would have scorned, for example, things like uh, indulgences given to pilgrims at uh, various sites, and they would have scorned what they thought were the largely uh, superstitious traditions about uh, miracles, relics, all, all of these uh, kinds of things associated with uh, the holy sites in Jerusalem. Nonetheless, uh, it's certainly not the case that uh, pilgrimage was uh, irrelevant, and there's lots of evidence that uh, not only the chaplains, but many of the merchants who served uh, in Aleppo and other uh, centres of English trade in the 17th century uh, used or or took the opportunity to undertake what they always refer to as a pilgrimage uh, to Jerusalem. And one of the, the, the lines of argument I try to develop in the book is that this... Uh, tradition of pilgrimage is uh, informed by two characteristics, and, and we often find these two words in, in the accounts, and that is devotion and uh, curiosity. Devotion uh, preserving some remnant of the old, uh, the older spiritual function of the pilgrimage, the idea that uh, one goes uh, to, to, to Jerusalem as the site of the, the, the life and passion of Christ as a kind of religious act, uh, but curiosity. Very much associated with uh, the, the characteristic ideas of the uh, of the seventeenth century, that, uh, that, that that something can be learned and that there's some uh, intrinsic value in 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 seeing these places and particularly in uh, observing them uh, for oneself. So that very much th- th- those two ideas, uh, devotion and uh, curiosity, uh, very much stand behind this uh, this tradition of pilgrimage, and this ties in again with the point I made. Earlier, where many of the chaplains, and indeed uh, some of the merchants, uh, used their experience in the Levant uh, to write back to their their, their friends at home and and to provide them with uh, information and observations, which uh, they think those friends uh, might find interesting. And this is very much what we see in the the, the pilgrimage tradition, where uh, we find uh, preserved many uh, sometimes quite lengthy and fascinating letters and, and accounts of of the uh, of the pilgrimage uh, to Jerusalem
0: and uh, you also talk about another chaplain there uh, william halifax yeah. who went on a pilgrimage to jerusalem in 1691 uh, why is it very important in the context of your book
1: well uh it's interesting i don't know if i could say it's important but it's interesting because um uh, halifax is, uh, is is one of the chaplains who's not particularly Uh, well-known figure in fact he's more uh, uh, well-known because as well as going to Jerusalem uh, he made one of the early uh, journeys to Palmyra uh, east of Aleppo in Syria which is of course uh, a a uh, well-known ancient site and and Halifax was one of the first um, travelers in the 17th century to attempt to rediscover the site of Palmyra but also importantly to, uh, to, to make transcriptions of the uh, of the inscriptions uh, in Palmyra, uh, in Palmyrene, which at that point uh, an Aramaic language, which at that point was undeciphered in the in the 17th uh, century. So anybody who has heard of William Halifax has probably heard of him in, that, in the context of that story of the discovery of uh, Palmyra. Uh, it, 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 it's it's not known at all that he travelled to um, or. Uh, not well known at all that he travelled to um, Jerusalem because his uh, account was never published, but survives in uh, a manuscript, which I used uh, in the book, and uh, and he there gives uh, quite a detailed uh, account of this uh, journey to uh, Jerusalem, which he undertook in uh, the 1690s and um, and it's interesting to me because uh, it it's, uh, contains. Uh, many of the, uh, of the characteristics which, uh, late, in later travel writing, uh, b- uh, very much come to the fore. That is, um, Halifax is uh, interested in all of the antique uh, uh, sites which he uh, encounters on the way between Aleppo and Jerusalem, so he includes uh, his own uh, accounts of uh, tombs, uh, transcriptions of uh, Latin and Greek uh, inscriptions, uh, for example. And when he gets to Jerusalem, we again see many of the characteristics which uh, come to the fore in better known English travel writing of the 18th century. So uh, he, he takes a very sceptical line on the, uh, the traditions which he hears from the Franciscans. The Franciscans at this point, the, the Catholic uh, uh, Catholics, are, are largely the, um, uh, the custodians of, of the Holy Land. So most uh, Protestants who go on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem are shown around a series of uh, sites by By their Franciscan guides, uh, and what we see in uh, Halifax's account is a kind of skepticism towards these uh, stories uh, which he's told, and, and very much this sense that uh, uh, his observations gain worth uh, in as far as they're, uh, they they've been observed by uh, him himself and uh, a, a, a infused with this uh, this tone of skepticism and
0: uh, there is another chaplain that uh... Uh, Henry Henry Montreal, yeah, yeah. yeah, he was elected to be a uh, he was elected as a chaplain in Aleppo. So can you talk about him and tell us why he's reported he wrote something called A Journey from Aleppo to Jerusalem at Easter was important?
1: Yes, so, um, uh, Mondrell, as you say, was elect- elected uh, a chaplain in, in Aleppo at the end of the uh, 17th century. Uh, and in many ways, uh, the, the story I try to uh, tell in the book is that he was quite uh, an unusual uh, character for to, to, to fulfil the role, which he did. He didn't particularly, uh, like some of the, um, the chaplains earlier in the 17th century, we've just been talking about Pocock and Huntington and others, he didn't particularly have a, a, a very notable scholarly background before going out to Aleppo. And there's uh, there's clearly a sense uh, in the, the the sources that uh, he may have been uh, sent there by his uh, uh, or, or his appointment was arranged by his uncle, a very uh, influential admiralty uh, judge, in order to um uh, to get him out of some uh, uh, rather difficult romantic um, situation which he'd uh, which he'd got into. Uh, and, and from most of uh, or, or his occasional uh, letters, which he, he sent back, it very much seems that uh, Mondrel was thinking much more about his own uh, clerical career in England uh, than he was about any uh, great feats of discovery, uh, building uh, collections of manuscripts or observing uh, the Holy Land, as had uh, some of his predecessors. Nonetheless, in, in the first uh, year, years of the 18th century, Mondreal, uh set out on this a chap, uh, a pilgrimage to um, uh, to Jerusalem uh, and he becomes uh, significant after that largely because uh, for, as a consequence of uh, fortuitous uh, events this uh, account is published uh, as you say a journey from Aleppo uh, to Jerusalem uh, first published um, in the uh, early years of the 18th century and it goes through a whole series of uh, editions uh, through the 18th century and really becomes I think one of the, the best known and best-selling uh, travel books uh, about uh, the Eastern Mediterranean uh, in the 18th century. And uh, these chaplains, some of these chaplains also established links with
0: Arab-speaking Christian churches in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, how 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 was it done, and what was the purpose of specifically establishing these links with the churches there?
1: Yeah, well, that's really the third part of the book which I try to explore. So the first part is um, largely about collecting manuscripts, uh, part two is about um, the uh, these um, antiquarian traditions, and then the, the third part is um, is about the links between the the Church of England and uh, the Eastern Christian churches, uh, uh, and these links begin uh, in in the seventeenth century. So Edward Pocock, I think, probably as a, a consequence of uh, observing what the Roman Catholic missionaries are doing in the earlier seventeenth century in Aleppo, is inspired on his return to undertake uh, a number of works in Arabic. He translates uh, a version of um, the, the Dutch uh, remonstrant scholar, Hugo Gratius's famous book uh, on the truth of the Christian religion. And he makes uh, a version of the English uh, catechism in uh, in, uh, in Arabic. And uh, Robert Huntington uh, in the, the 1670s, about whom we talked, attempts to distribute some of these books uh, among the Eastern Christians, uh, not, it seems, uh, with a great deal of uh, success. There are some other chaplains. There's a man called uh, Robert Frampton, uh, whom we haven't talked about, but who uh, is uh, a very interesting uh, chaplain in Aleppo in the 1650s and 1660s. And he uh, takes a great uh, interest in the condition of the uh, of the Christians uh, in Aleppo, particularly in a charitable sense. He tries to set up uh, a charitable benefaction to help the the, um, the Eastern Christians. But uh, this part of the book really explores what happens in the eighteenth century, uh, which is largely a consequence of the work of the Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge. Uh, the Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge had been founded in. 1698 and wasn't primarily concerned with the Eastern Mediterranean. So they're interested first of all in um, uh, uh, maintaining uh, libraries in the English provinces and uh, and then in uh, the New World in America. Uh, But in the uh, 18th century they're uh, persuaded to um, uh, to attempt to print and uh, to distribute in Syria a series of uh, Arabic Bibles, the New Testament and the Psalter, that is the book of uh, Psalms, translated into Arabic for the use of the Eastern uh, Christian churches. And this brings them into uh, uh, collaboration with the English Levant Company, um, uh, largely because they uh, the plan is that uh, the chaplains will uh, distribute the, these books for them among the Christians uh, in Aleppo.
0: And uh, you also talk about this project there called um a so- society for pro- for promoting christian knowledge yeah uh, and also there you talk about the role of uh, roland sherman in this project can you tell us what this project was and what was the purpose of it and what was particular about the
1: role of roland sherman in this yeah well i said that the uh, society for christian knowledge hoped that the the Aleppo chaplains would um would uh uh distribute the bibles and that was Uh, perhaps the obvious um, uh, plan of action. But as it turned out, uh, a merchant called uh, Roland Sherman came to take uh, a very prominent um, role in this. Uh, Sherman's very unusual in many respects, and uh, he's unusual because, whereas my book largely focuses on the chaplains, Sherman comes in the 18th century uh, to undertake many of the tasks which uh, during the 17th century have been pretty much the exclusive uh, preserve of the chaplain. So it's not very common, for example, uh, for English merchants serving in Aleppo to try to learn Arabic. Sherman Sherman is very much uh, an exception. He learns uh, Arabic uh, exceptionally well. Uh, Sherman, I should say, spends the uh, unusually uh, uh, long time of around 60 years in Aleppo. He goes out there as as quite a young man uh, and stays there for his whole life. And during this time, uh, he learns Arabic uh, uh, very well, uh, and uh, and uh, he became involved and very interested in the, uh, the the Eastern Christian churches and particularly the Greek Orthodox uh, Church. Uh, and uh, in Aleppo, <clears throat> I should not perhaps just uh, sketch in here that the main context for what the Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge is doing in Aleppo is. Uh, the the success throughout the 17th and into the 18th century of of the Roman Catholic missions. And and during the time that uh, uh, Sherman was in Aleppo, uh, there was a a split, a famous schism between uh, what we would now think of as the the, the Greek Orthodox and uh, the the Greek Catholic Church, the Greek Catholic Church being uh, the the part of the the Arabic-speaking Greek Church uh, uh, under the Patriarchate of Antioch, which had uh, adopted as a consequence of the Catholic missions, uh, Catholic teachings, and, and so this uh, and this results in a, a struggle between the uh, the Orthodox and the Catholic factions, and it's largely this struggle which is the background to Sherman's uh, activities attempting to uh, distribute uh, Bibles uh, printed in England in Arabic. So Sherman becomes uh, a central figure in the book, largely because of this role which he plays. Uh, uh, the, helping the, the the aims of the uh, the Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge of England, but dependent very much on these relationships, uh, he's been able to build uh, in Aleppo. And particularly, uh, I, I explore the relation his relationship with a man called uh, Athanasius the at Dabas, who's the the, the Patriarch of uh, of the Orthodox uh, a, a Greek Church uh, and, uh, during the period uh, the early eighteenth century when uh, Sherman's in Aleppo. And uh, what happened with this,
0: this this magnificent culture of let's say uh, of commerce of knowledge that you talk about um that this manuscript collecting and a lot sort of tailed off since the days of pocock and huntington in 1930s and 70s 1630s sorry and 1670s why did that happen
1: yes well it's a very difficult it's a it's a complex question right? i suspect that uh, there are many different answers uh Answers to it. One of them is about the uh, simply about the history of Oriental studies in in Europe, uh, and that is that um, there's a brilliant uh, uh, surge of uh, 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 in this field of scholarship in the early part of the uh, the 17th century, particularly uh, connected in England with uh, the work of uh, Edward Pocock. And uh, Pocock, as I've mentioned already, has uh, contemporaries in other European countries, particularly uh, Jacobus Golius in the Netherlands doing similar things, but um, uh, th- there's not really any uh, among Pocock's students who quite uh, managed to uh, take up the mantle of his uh, his work and, uh, and continue this uh, tradition into the later 17th and 18th century. Uh, Huntington might have been one uh, candidate uh, to, to do this, but uh, for various reasons uh, he doesn't. So th- there's not uh, quite the same uh uh, impetus towards uh, advanced oriental scholarship in England, driving manuscript collecting in the later 17th and 18th centuries there had been in the days of, uh, of Pocock. So that's that's one part of the explanation. Another, the, but the, the, the explanations which I try to think about in the book uh, are rather different and, and are much more dependent on these kinds of uh, infrastructures, if you like, uh, between uh, commerce, uh, diplomacy, the chaplains and, and scholarship that uh, that I've been exploring. Uh, and one of them is that uh, I try to make the case that um, in the uh, 17th century, uh, this is very much dependent on uh, rather informal and ad hoc relationships between uh, the, the chaplains as representatives in some sense of the scholarly world and the trading companies. And what we begin to see in the uh, 18th century is, is the rise of much more uh, professionalized, if you like, uh, uh, collectors, uh, men who have uh, funding, which has been uh, specifically designed for the purposes of uh, collection and exploration. And the example I use is uh, a, a German or Danish uh, figure called Karsten Niebuhr, who in the, uh, uh, the, the middle part of the 18th century is sent out uh, on this extraordinary uh, expedition to explore the uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, and in fact goes much further uh, to uh, to arabia than uh, than any of the chaplains uh, would have, so you get this 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 sort of rise of the professional collector, which I argue uh, comes to displace the more uh, informal work of uh, of the chaplains. Uh, another part of the explanation is that the underlying uh, patterns of English uh, trade and diplomacy uh, are changing during the eighteenth century and uh, and in particular. Uh, the, the, the English um, uh, as the uh, English in India become much more of a, begin to become an imperial power in the, the second part of the 18th century uh, that uh, the scholarly interests uh, tend uh, in some senses to move towards, uh, towards India and I try to explain this in the book by looking at uh, a figure called Thomas Hyde who's uh, a scholar in Oxford in the uh, later part of the 17th century and show the way uh, uh, in which uh, as as the opportunity to collect uh, manuscripts from uh, uh, east asia and the the, the subcontinent arise uh, he begins to to explore those and uh, and, and in some sense this is uh, representative of a movement of scholarly interests away from the uh, the, the levant uh, the, the near east as we now say and towards uh, towards asia
0: and uh this this inform this ad hoc and informal relation uh nature of collaboration between chaplains and scholars change uh why does this happen and how does it change
1: yeah well i think it's uh it's partly to do with um uh some of the things i've just talked about where you get uh a, a certain kind of um professional Collector becomes uh, becomes much more uh, becomes much more significant, and, and, and that uh, tends to mean that uh, during the the eighteenth century, uh, we don't really see any uh, uh, chaplains like um, with with the kind of energy that had uh, driven Robert Huntington in the in the in the in the seventeenth century. I mean, one thing perhaps to say as well is simply that the uh, the Levant Company and the place of uh, Aleppo becomes much less. Uh, significant during the course of the the 18th century. So, whereas um, uh, I think it's uh, it's no coincidence that uh, Huntingdon is perhaps the most uh, energetic uh, chaplain in, in a scholarly sense, in the sense in the sense of the uh, the size of the collection that he's able to to build and the the extent of his travels and his work uh, exploring Syria and Egypt. Uh, there's no coincidence between the fact that he does this. And that at this point in the 17th century, the Levant, the English trade in the Levant is really at its peak. The the, the, uh, Aleppo is a very important uh, place for English trade and that trade is flourishing. And this begins to change somewhat in the uh, the 18th century. So there's a man who I, a chaplain who I explore much later uh, in the 18th century, in the 1760s, called uh, Thomas Dawes. Uh, And uh, and he, in his letters, he's uh, complaining about his salary, and he makes the point that uh, that the meagre salary he has and the, the, uh, his duties prevent him from travelling and prevent him from doing very much uh, in a scholarly sense. And, and he does give uh, uh, some sense there of his attempt to learn languages, and uh, and he he plugs away at uh, studying Arabic and so forth. But it, but it seemed to me very much. Uh, uh, a rather pale echo of the the, the kind of work that uh, figures like um, Pocock and, uh, and Huntington had done in uh, earlier in the seventeenth century, and in many ways, as I say, that's that's partly a consequence of, uh, or not unconnected with, the the, the decline of the, uh, the the Levant trade, and and specifically the significance of Aleppo in in the eighteenth century. Mm
0: uh before we end this conversation I'd like to make a comment and then I'll ask you one final question uh my background is not in history but I really really enjoyed reading this book and I guess to me a part of the purpose of uh what I learned from the book was actually this rich history of collaboration between the east and the west or let's say in this Mm. case England and and the Ottoman Empire before reading your book I had come across another book by I forgot the name of the author. I Thing in America was published as uh, Sultan and the Queen, which was about uh, yes. the... Um, yeah. Anyhow, cool. but but when I read that book, I was just fascinated between uh, fascinated by this collaboration between England and the Ottoman Empire, and Solomon the Great was king king of the Ottoman Empire. And this book that uh, you've written also uh, highlights another aspect of this this intercultural interaction between the two regions. And I guess it's a much-needed part of history because a lot of people think that, uh, you know, many right-wingers or conservatives tend to think that, well, there's this invasion of the East into the West and and the cultural decline in the West. But I guess books like this just go to show how rich this collaboration has been over centuries.
1: Yes, that's... uh, Uh, Yeah. Yes. Yes, well, that's... uh, that's, uh... Very, um, very good. Very nice of you to say so, uh, and I think um, I think that's right. I mean, one of the, uh, as you as you may know, one of the sort of uh, ideas that defines uh, so much work on this uh, field was um, the work of the, uh, the the literary scholar Edward Said and Sa- Said's idea of, yeah. um, of Orientalism, and uh, and there's of course uh, uh, much truth to this. The the the, the way that um, western scholars uh, particularly in the or western authors particularly in the 19th century uh, wrote about uh, the, the east and the muslim world in uh, in sometimes quite uh, derogatory terms but i suppose what i wanted to to try to show in this book is that a rather uh, different kind of um, relationship between the um, western europe and the the, the uh, Ottoman Empire existed in in an earlier period in the 16th and the 17th century when the the power balance of course was was quite uh, was quite different and for many of the chaplains who went out to Aleppo certainly in the early period it was the Ottoman Empire that was uh, that was the great uh, imperial force but um mm-hmm. uh, 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 and the particular what I wanted particularly to explore was that uh, when we begin to look uh, beneath the surface uh, so to speak of, of of the way that the, the east was represented in uh, in european writings during this period and look uh at the actual um process of uh, collaboration between uh, western scholars and, and and the scholars and copyists and uh, other figures whom they whom they met in the east we really do uh, catch sight of these uh of these moments of uh, collaboration and, and following that through uh, what I hope people would uh, get some sense of from reading the book is that uh, this uh, uh, field of study, which I've been referring to as Oriental studies in, in the 17th century, uh, was uh, in many respects a uh, working out of that uh, of those, uh, those small episodes of collaboration. Uh, and therefore, we can see that it was something, uh, Oriental scholarship, which was uh, constructed. Uh, uh, both by Western scholars, of course, but also by the uh, Eastern scholars who are copying manuscripts, uh, supplying information about uh, how to read them and and how to interpret them. So it's a kind of uh, collaborative process, as you say, between the the Western world and the the Muslim world, which uh, is perhaps quite uh, striking to to, to a modern 21st century uh, person looking back on this this earlier period. Mm
0: is there another uh, book you're currently working on or any other project yes
1: so i'm actually uh working now on a, a book about some um, uh a, a smaller scale book about uh an eastern uh, christian scholar from aleppo who uh who came to europe in the early 18th century and had a very interesting career first in germany and afterwards in england a man called uh carolus Raleigh didiki who appears very briefly in uh, a commerce of knowledge because he gets uh uh, involved in the 18th century with the society promoting christian knowledge's project to translate the arabic bibles but he does lots of uh interesting things before that uh particularly in the german city of uh of Halle, and uh and so i'm i I'm, I'm working on what i hope will be a, a short book about him mm-hmm.
0: well i hope to be able to talk to you about that book soon on your books network
1: it would be, it would be very good yeah yeah mm.
0: uh, thank you very very much for taking the time to talk with us about this wonderful book simon Well, thank you again. I really enjoyed this conversation.
1: It was a pleasure. Yeah.